every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the trees. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. Rosie on the house, your outdoor living hour. Saturday morning tradition for 33 years here in the great state of Arizona. The second Saturday of the month, we're talking trees. And we have ISA certified arborist John Eisenhower in studio with us. Good morning, John. And yes. Good morning. Yes, I do. i got a very special guest with us today. Gary Peterson is the new branch manager at Save a Tree here in Phoenix. And uh, he's got an interesting little background that I, I was interested to find out. Like so many people here in Arizona, he's a transplant. You know, <laughs> we talk about transplanting trees. We, there's more transplanted people here than there are natives. My wife is a native of Arizona. Proud to be married to her. But, uh, Gary, tell me a little bit about your – you mentioned you're from, from northern Ohio – Northeast Ohio, that's correct. Uh, from a little farm town called Minerva, Ohio. Um, little background on me: I come from a, a farm of about 200, 300 acres, something like that. Um, grew a lot of corn, grew a lot of soybean, um, grew a lot of gardens. Um, was in the FFA, 4-H, did all that. Growing up, uh, graduated high school and went to work for Uncle Sam for about four years. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. Thank yes, you, sir. and. What was it like to move to uh, Arizona from northern Ohio? What, what were some of those uh, differences you noticed right away? I always like to grow tomatoes back home, and uh, growing tomatoes in Phoenix, Arizona is extremely tough to do. I've tried to grow them inside, outside, hang them upside down, <laughs> just can't get it done. I know, and you're not alone. It's, I've, I've heard that from so many people that come back here. They say back, in, back east where we're from or the Midwest— we can just throw a seed in the ground and it grows, but come out here and it's a different story, especially tomatoes. And tomatoes, you know, Romeo, how, how do you, how are you doing with tomatoes? I know you got quite a few, you know, uh, plants on your side. Do you do tomatoes at all? It's been a couple of years since we've done tomato. Tomatoes are, um, but the only thing we would ever have to worry about is I never started from seed. I'd always get from the nursery and get right. the little starter Starts. plants. Yeah, um, you you, you got to really watch out for the splitting on the end you know the, yeah. the water balance and getting them right and what i learned is depending on what type of tomato you know if you've got a little cherry tomato don't put it next to um a big larger yeah. variety because the watering's different yeah, yeah. and if you're trying to do the same amount of water on different varieties it never balances out right so i have to plant them separately if you want varieties uh, and and you really got to watch that the bottom of them splitting for, yeah, for your water it, balance. I found too that you really need it's really you know dependent on the varieties. There are some varieties that do much better here than others. So you want to be sure you're consulting your local nursery for those those go to varieties that that are really successful. The next thing is is you got to have good deep well drained uh, soil, and that's what's true in the Midwest. They've got a you know two feet of a beautiful well drained. Uh, soil full of organic matter, and it's so easy to you know to develop roots because the top growth in tomatoes is all dependent upon the roots. And how, what's the saying, Romy? As go 
the roots, so go the shoots. That's right. <laughs> Good to know. And All if, right. And if, if and especially true of tomatoes. In fact, I was told that if you get your little tomato starts, if you actually plant them too deep, we always are telling people, don't plant your plants too deep because they'll, they'll get root rot. Well, tomatoes actually can grow roots right out of the stem, out of that, that, that stem on those ju- uh, juvenile plants. So they say plant them deep and you'll get more root activity more quickly. So let you actually tip them sideways. Don't bury the, the actual root ball way, way deep in your soil. Just kind of tip the plant sideways so that soil grows over the part of the, two or three inches of the stem as well. And it'll give them a kickstart because it, it'll immediately push out roots uh, into the soil from that stem as well as the roots that are in the, in the little root ball. So when you take those little starters, plant them out, and tip them over, get some of that. That Sometimes they're kind of bending and curling anyway, the, the stems of those tomatoes. You know, take some of that curled stem and push it under the soil or mound some soil over the top of it, and it'll give them a nice head start. Do that now in the winter. In fact, if you're getting your, you've got your greenhouse or your, you have your tomatoes indoors now, get them started right now. And by January, February, when we can start to put them out, um, you'll already have that, that, that nice root system developed. That's a really a, a head, give you a head start uh, heading into the spring. And uh, hopefully you'll have a little bit more success. And those of you who do have that kind of hard clay soil that you're having st- struggles with, um, start adding um, some nice organic material too. Start digging it down a little bit, get some, introduce some, uh, uh, some soil amendments, uh, maybe a little bit of fertilizer. Get that soil prepared too so that in the spring, you're ready to put that new plant in place. And I will say every tomato I've grown here has been in a raised garden where it's just yep. got nice. bags of uh, like Mel's mix or, you know, a nice, yeah, a good, nice potting soil. Good and something soil. else I haven't tried yet, you can order them at uh, totallytomatoes.com. It's a grafted tomato plant because it's in the same uh, plant species as t- uh, potatoes. You're Roots are potatoes, and the shoots are Tomato. tomatoes. No it's way. a grafted. It's called ketchup and fries plant. What's <laughs> it? Ketchup and fries. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you can get it at totallytomato.com and order them. I, I, that sounds like I don't know the variety winter. of tomato they put on there, um, and, and I haven't tried, but it, it sounds fun. <laughs> it does. It does. Now it I've does. got something to do this weekend. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> well, let's get to talking trees. Um, welcome, Gary, from... Ohio, and thanks for joining us here. And you're with uh, Save-A-Tree, the new branch manager. Is that different than a leaf manager at, at Save-A-Tree? Is there <laughs> a, a little bit, is yes. Is there a root yes. manager? <laughs> yes, yes. The, uh, the branch manager title does is a lot different than the leaf manager. You're correct. And we, if you're following along in our home maintenance calendar, you know we're talking about, uh, well, we've always got the tree of the month, uh, and it's the white mulberry tree. What's uh I hadn't heard of a white mulberry. What's the difference between a white mulberry and a regular mulberry? Well, the white mulberry tree is it's a, a mulberry tree that does really, really well here. And it is a, it's gotten a bad rap over the years because it contributed, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago to um, a lot of pollen uh, in the air. And it was um, actually banned. Um, nurseries couldn't sell them. You couldn't buy them. In fact, we have several of those old school mulberry trees in our yard, and you're, they're kind of grandfathered in. If you have them in your yard, you're not you don't have to take them down, but they are big pollen producers, and um, they they've really kind of fallen out of favor over the years. Until very recently, some white mulberry trees have been reintroduced that are low pollen producing, 
And the female trees produce a really nice fruit, kind of a, a, a blackberry-type shaped fruit and a similar kind of a taste. And the, the immature fruit is white. But as a tree becomes more and more mature over maybe five or ten years, they'll start to turn purple. And eventually they, they're a, a, a very dark purple um, and as I'm saying that, some people are, are, are saying, yeah, really, really purple. Um, and they're the ones that they, they, they can be tracked into your house very easily, so be really careful. They, and some people would never even tolerate the mess because for about two weeks, our mulberry tree puts on all these mulberries. Our dogs love them, by the way. The dogs just gobble them down, which is another story. But, no, they do make a, a carpet of, 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 a, of a lot of mess. So you'll trample them down, and, they, and if you're not careful, you can carry that dark purple color into your uh, carpeted homes and cause some uh, grief there. But, no, they're just a super cool tree. There are some Pakistani mulberries now that have a mulberry. Our mulberries are about, at maturity, are about an inch and a half long and about maybe three-quarters of an inch wide. The Pakistani mulberries can be three or four inches long and about an inch in diameter. They're monstrous, and they're just incredibly good fruit producers. You know, you know uh, we've got uh, Lila and, and Michael Ledner, who own the Simple Farm in North Scottsdale, good friends of ours, have a, a bunch of Pakistani mulberries. They're, they're, they, um, uh, they capture as many of them as they can. They put a big bed sheet out underneath them every day. And then uh, collect as many as they can, and then uh, then they'll then they'll clean the sheet and then put it out the next day, and the new fresh mulberries will come down. Otherwise, you got mulberries coming down on top of old mulberries, and it's really hard to pick the the, the good ones off the ground. So they've they've actually turned a uh, a, a an umbrella upside down and hung it <laughs> and hung it in the tree, Very and so cool. they can capture you know uh, just a few, and that's enough every day where they can take them and eat the ones off off of there and. And then at the end of the day, they can dump that out and hang the umbrella upside down again. But they're really fast-growing trees. Look up Pakistani mulberry at your local nursery. Ask for them. You will not regret it. They're super fast-growing. You can have them producing mulberries within a year or, a year or two. They and if you need something with a shade tree, now, they are big trees, so you've yeah, got to have they, the room they are, for it. They are. They are. Yeah. And uh, and, and great shade trees. And we are mulberry. We, we planted two run when we moved into the house and talk about hardy we, we the the one we call it our jesus tree because it's come back to life so many times <laughs> the goat stripped the bark wow. off of it our neighbor <laughs> ran it over uh when it was in its infantile it's gone i've cut it off down to the root three times and it's just as big as the tree right next to it that's never been uh, it, it's come back as a multi-trunked, yeah, yeah, um, and and is just as big as a single trunk that was planted at the same time. <laughs> I mean, talk about hardy, and even though they're not native, they're uh, they're they're not they're super, super thirsty. Durable. That you know yeah. they they can they can handle the heat. Yeah, they they do handle the heat really well. They love any water you give them; they'll turn it into leaves. So you can kind of moderate their growth by limiting the water that you give them. But they do love a little bit of water. The white mulberry, you can learn more about it at rosyonthehouse.com. Just uh, look in the quick links, and it'll take you to a page all about it. Um, but just to re restate, our tree of the month is the white mulberry, but the one we're talking about because you can plant it is the Pakistani mulberry. I don't. I agree. I, I, I know there's certain restrictions on 
the, the, the pollinating. I think the, you can get both of them. I would check with the nursery and find out. But the Pakistani is the one that we've been uh, really caught in a lot of, caught a lot of headlines lately because it's such a big fruit producer. So we've got John Eisenhower and Gary Peterson talking trees. How did trees get onto the internet? They log on. <laughs> <laughs> Talking Trees, Saturday morning. We do it the second Saturday of every month. And, John, before we get to our to-do this week, which is, uh, oh, frozen lawn damage. I forgot y'all also do lawn care now. Uh, but we'll talk about, you know, protecting your trees from frost damage as well, should we get some. But I've got to ask you about primary water. And I send it to all of our outdoor hosts that come in regularly because the one thing that, you know, whether we're talking trees or we're with the Farm Bureau or uh, Jay Harper talking just general landscape, garden, nursery, or Greg Peterson, you know, everything outdoors we use hat takes water. And, you know, we've got the Tier 1 shortage and Lake Powell and, and Lake Mead. And I, I stumbled across this primary water. And it seems like nobody's ever heard of it. I hadn't until six weeks ago. And I hadn't until you told me. What'd you, what what it, was your reaction? Well, just to let our, our um, l- listeners know, it primary water is apparently water that's below the, the Earth's mantle. And a lot of it, maybe three times the volume of the Earth's oceans, are actually below the Earth's surface, deep in the heart and in, in below the mantle of the Earth. And... This supply of water is tappable at certain places where there's access to it. In certain fissures and cracks fissures and fault and cracks lines. And fault lines. Um, and it's pretty fascinating to think that that water may be available um, and, uh, and as a source for you know, all of our many water shortages that we might be experiencing. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, it, you, can, you can really go deep in the rabbit hole no, with all the information on it. No pun intended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it's not in liquid form. It's in steam form from the heat, from the magma that, that they say it's constantly being created. New water is always being created. And this heat from the magma pushes it up and then it comes into liquid form as it comes out of these different cracks. And, you know, I mean, we were talking about it with Jay Harper when we first talked about it, uh, you know, and I use Horton Springs because if you've been in Arizona any extended amount of time, you've probably heard of Horton Springs or, or even Castle Hot Springs. Right. You know, how, where is that water coming from? When we are pumping groundwater, we have mm-hmm. to mechanically pump it. So how is this water naturally coming out? You know, well, primary mm-hmm. water explains that it's the, the pressure from the magma and the warmer the water is coming out, you know you're closer to the, to the, the heat, heat source. source. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I... There's none that are drilled in Arizona that we're aware of, but primarywaterinstitute.org has a map of all the primary wells they've drilled, number in Colorado, number of them in Africa and Asia. And I just think, man, we keep talking about the, the water shortage. What if you pumped and drilled a bunch of primary wells along the Colorado River shed and yeah. just let it you know, Arizona and naturally yeah, do and its thing Nevada and fill up the reservoirs. In, in California, you know, uh, with all their conflicts regarding the Colorado River water, you would think that we would certainly be uh, candidates for, you know, for looking into that, you know. Yeah. Ben, ben, it would be a much faster and real-time solution than a lot of the other things. Um, there's one uh, group out of Casa Grande that 
is pushing Congress to do a study on creating a cow from Davenport, Iowa, and channeling water over to the Green River, which is the confluence to the Colorado. That's that's a long, long way. <laughs> long and, way. <laughs> and then another one, you know, pulling out of the Columbia and bringing it down to the Green River. Um, and, you know, aside from a long way, the CAP canal is 336 miles. That took 20 years to build. Right. If we started now, you know, we're still decades away from having that having that, right. that water if yeah. if they decide to engineer something like that which you know it'd probably take a couple years to engineer that well how deep is that water at the uh, that primary water as a as a rule is it like so 10 miles deep the kind of the the modern day father of it a german man by the name of steven um reese he he's passed away in 85 um, and the, his protege, Paul Power, now kind of taking it over and trying to, you know, bring this concept into mainstream and educate everyone. You know, there is no shortage of water. We're just not looking in the right place. Um, you have to do geological surveys to find the cracks to determine how deep you have to drill. Some of them, um, the one they did on the fault line in Tehachapi in California, I think they were, that one's only 40 feet deep. And then there's other ones that are, you know, hundreds of feet deep. You just have to find that crack in the... Oh, so it's that close to the surface. I was thinking it was when you mentioned about the Earth's mantle, that, that, that it's... Uh, that's where it's all created, miles underneath. I see. So it's working its way up through some of these fault lines and exactly. finding its way to the surface. Cool. So it, it's an interesting concept. And, you know, it, it would... Like I said, it would be a real-time solution. So we're doing a lot more interviews and calling around people that have um, – I'd like to go see one before we really spend a whole hour or a whole broadcast on it. But, yeah. you know, it it would work, which is why it's probably not being considered. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm right. sure there would be, be some strict – Cut out a lot of money, man, in the well, middle sure of that. there would be some strict regulation, yeah, for sure, just to be sure that it's not – abused all right well i've sidetracked you but you were the last uh outdoor living hour host and i hadn't <laughs> got to ask that on air yet and the funny thing is no no one had ever heard of it either yeah um so very very interesting concept we'll spend a lot of time digging into that but we've got a lot of talking trees bullet points to do including uh preparing for frost damage should we get it and i know it sounds silly but you know if you don't prepare and frost comes the one thing you can't find in the store? Frost cross. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us through bottom of the hour news break. It is Rosie on the house. We're talking trees with ISA certified arborist John Eisenhower of Save a Tree, joined by branch manager Gary Peterson. And uh, it, it there have been cold snaps uh, just before Thanksgiving. Schools in Russia closed down because temperatures were below 58 degrees Fahrenheit. I know we're a lot farther south and closer to the equator, but uh, you know. We, we get those cold snaps here we too do. sometimes and we do. uh how, how do we what do we need to do to be they're, prepared they're tough they're tough on plants no no doubt about it and Arizona has had such a we are a unique cl- climate here with we can be 17 degrees and we be, we can be 117 degrees any place on the planet where you have a 100 degree swing 
um, you know, throughout the course of the year is 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 quite a a a, a wide margin of, of of temperature, a wide range of temperatures, and um, we do get those cold temperatures. We get these. Uh, um, we we have a lot of introduced plant species in many of our our towns, um, uh, in in Tucson and, and Phoenix. You know, we have a lot of desert plants, but yet um, we have a lot of introduced species that do quite well here, but they might uh, 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 do well at 25 degrees and above or 28 degrees and above or some, you know, 32 degrees and above. A lot of tropicals, a lot of uh, um, plants from southern Mexico, uh, Central America uh, that end up being here and they do great, you know, in our summer climate, in our Mm -hmm. spring climate. But man, you know, get it, you know turn the corner into a cold winter and they start getting a lot of sun, you know, a lot of frost damage. Many of them, like I'm thinking of our t- Tacomas, our, our, our yellow bells and uh, plants like that, we just expect them to get blasted every winter. They, they don't do much, do, do well um, under about 30, uh, 32 degrees and doesn't take much to, to frost them and, and get them looking all browned out. But if they're established and they've been in the ground for a year or two, uh, they bounce right back. You know, we just figure we're just going to cut them back in the spring, and sure enough, they just you know even if you have to cut them right to the ground, uh, they'll they'll bounce back. Other ones, you know, you have to you know be a little more protective of. If you have some of those higher dollar um, plants um, that you might need to throw a frost cloth over if you don't want them to get damaged too badly, uh, and and we do recommend getting that frost cloth early. So you don't end up uh, finding an empty shelf with the supply chain uh, issues we've been we've been having. That's something to probably consider. Make sure you get out and get that uh, frost cloth to to throw down. In a, in a pinch, you can use a bed sheet, you know, or something heavier like that. But generally, as the temperatures rise in the morning after ten or eleven o'clock, pull those off to get the solar energy back in there. Get those, you know. But, you know, in the evenings as the temperatures start dropping and you're anticipating a frost, uh, go ahead and cover the plants and and uh, uh, get them ready for the, for the evening. Do you remember, was it 2008, when we had four days in Phoenix of below freezing temperatures? And all I remember was my poor ficus tree shed so many leaves because it, <laughs> it just lost it. But I distinctly remember that because I was getting ready to run the Phoenix Half Marathon. I had guys from Chicago complaining how cold it was. It was 26 degrees that morning, and they were complaining. I said, you're from Chicago. What, what are you complaining <laughs> yeah. about? But that, that was a cold, cold, cold Yeah, we there are some parts of town here, and, and there are some of our listeners who are nodding their heads in agreement that get down into those teens and mid-teens, 15, 16, 17 degrees. Those are some cold, cold temps for Arizona. Thank goodness, and, and remember that the frost damage doesn't just occur because we get these these cold spikes where the where these big drops in temperature. It's the extended time at those 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 temperatures that cause the damage. It doesn't um, if you you know drop down to thirty one degrees for an hour or two, and then you're back up to thirty two or thirty three the rest of the the, the night. It's not going to do considerable considerable damage. Then it is the multiple days of you know night after night after night of those that will start to to really take a toll on your your citrus and your your ficus trees they'll start to really get get hit hard um you can you know cause uh, a little bit of humidity you can create some humidity by watering your plants ahead of a, a frost that you anticipate go ahead and flood irrigate underneath your plants get some water in the soil 
that that additional humidity can sometimes save your your shrubs, especially your you know more delicate, smaller plants, your flowers, ground cover shrubs, uh, trees. It's a different story. You might put you know a little flood irrigation below those could cause a little bit of um, humidity, but generally you need to cover those trees. And remember, drape the shade cloth. Uh, don't just drape it down to the ground. It needs to be on the ground and and uh, and sealed so that you actually are trapping the moisture underneath the shade cloth that will create a little micro environment uh, underneath the shade cloth. If you just drop your shade cloth down to near near the soil or uh, you know kind of apron it down to the to the soil surface, uh, it'll just be basically the same temperature inside the shade cloth. You need to bring the shade cloth down, have at least a foot or so that you can uh, have down on the soil and then put some stones or something else around it to try to seal it off. Better yet, put some you know shovelfuls of, of decomposed granite around it so it's actually completely air sealed at the bottom. Um, that way, your, your whatever moisture there is inside that canopy is going to be just uh, an in, a, a degree or two warmer, and of course the humidity is going to help as well. And that's a really good point because a lot of times you see people they've had it blown off a few times, so they tie it around the trunk, and it's like you're you're not accomplishing anything if you're taking that frost cloth and tying it tying around, it the, around trunk. the trunk. <laughs> yeah, good good point. That's exactly right. That's defeating the purpose, and um, yeah, you've got to have that. It's that that, wa- that air that's trapped in there that's slightly different than the outside air temperature. It also is uh, protecting it from the wind because the chill factor, too, is something to consider. Is when you, you get that wind blowing, as you know, in Ohio, yep. it can be, you know, 30 degrees out. But the you know, wind chill factor of, you know, it's down to 15 degrees. So Bone chilling. Yeah. I remember yeah. I spent my first winter, you know, in northern um, Ohio, in, uh, in Painesville, Ohio. Right off the Lake Erie, and the wind coming off the lake. Oh my goodness! I was just a, a little desert rat, 19 <laughs> years old. My first winter there, it was terrible. You got the experience. Lake effect snow uh, too. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a rough winter for this this Arizona boy. All right, so get ready for frost protection, and then for a lawn. Obviously, you can't cover the whole lawn. Do you just set your sprinklers to go off early morning, and? Uh, yeah, you need to be careful with that. And you know, if you if you have frost on your lawn, uh, you don't want to be walking on it. That's the main thing. You, you'll often have frost delays on golf courses for that very reason. They don't want um, you putting footprints because what you, what you're doing is you're when you you step on those frozen blades of grass, you're crushing the cells, the actual uh, cells in the in the leaf material, and you'll leave footprints across your 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 grass or your your golf green. Um, and you don't want to do that. So wait until a little bit later in the morning when the thaw comes, and uh, the, those you know there's no frost, and then you can safely walk across it again. Um, there are some uh, some suggestions with regard to um, fr- uh, the frost damage, uh, uh, preventing that frost damage in terms of watering. Um, look them up online. I don't I don't want to give recommendations over the radio, but I think there are some suggestions for watering ahead of time again. Uh, with your lawns, but you don't want to be setting up a condition where you you have water that's freezing on the soil surface there. You want to encourage some humidity, but you don't want to be um, actually uh, causing there to be a lake of water that's going to freeze as well and cause even more extensive damage. So just be careful with your your lawns, especially uh, walking across it um, on those frosty mornings. 
And you wanted to talk today about removing trees. Yeah, you know, kind of seems counterintuitive to your business. (laughs) Well, yeah, and people people are always people are always asking us. Well, you know, isn't it? Can I always save my trees? There a time when I should? Why would anyone ever want to remove a tree? And in Arizona, because we are so um, concerned about green canopy and having good canopy cover in Arizona, we are very conscious about saving every tree we possibly can, and that's the name of our company, Save a Tree. So, uh, we are all about doing everything we can to preserve our trees in place. But there comes a time when a, the, the reason and the season uh, for a tree expire, uh, when that reason that the tree was originally planted, uh, the tree's fulfilled its landscape purpose, and it's exceeded that purpose, and it maybe outgrown its landscape location. Maybe the tree has, has become unhealthy for various reasons. It's starting to decline. Maybe the tree has died there's reasons why why we have to eventually come in and say, you know, I think it's time for us to remove this tree. Uh, some people have encroachment on their walls or their or their sidewalk or their driveway. They're starting to get some hardscape damage because the roots are getting underneath. And um, obviously a tree was beautiful for the first uh, 15, 20 years of its life, but now it's become a uh, not an asset but a liability. And when you get to that point, you just have to say, hey, it's time for us to um, – to remove this tree and replace it with something and enjoy seeing a smaller tree uh, grow into that location. Sometimes you get so much shade and so much leaf litter that you realize, hey, my landscape would actually be improved by the removal of this tree because now I can get more light to and some more sunlight to the understory plants. Uh, we can get some uh, um, uh, some more visibility to the landscape beyond the tree. Uh, a lot of people have mountain views that, that are no longer no longer there when they uh, when they first moved in and now because trees have grown in and blocked so there's a lot of sightline issues with um, removing trees and for those various reasons um, you know we we have to come to the conclusion that some of these trees are, are need to come out the most important reason why we take trees out is because they become hazardous some trees have structural issues they have uh, excessive decay um, maybe they have um, overextended branches. Maybe they're lion-tailed trees that the, the distribution of the weight of the foliage in the trees is so bad that they're you know that they're they're causing problems. Maybe some of those trees have a a history of a branch failure, and month after month, year after year, uh, you're 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 worried. Um, and you know we have a lot of people who have you know. Um, you know, beautiful landscapes and homes, and and they've had branches, huge branches of of some big trees, uh, fall and and cause some extensive damage, and so for those various reasons, um, we've had to you know come in and take some of those trees out uh, because they're posing such a high risk. Um, we uh, recommend if you have some large trees, get a good professional opinion by an arborist. And get a reputable company that's not going to be playing on your fears and having you take out trees unnecessarily. Be sure that there are good reasons for taking a tree out before you do. But once you've made that decision, you realize it's a good decision, then be sure you have a capable company who can come in and do it with competence and with safety and, uh, and, and do a good job for you and make sure it's, it's done well. And then you might find out, you might be pleasantly surprised if you get a good arborist in there, that they'll come and say, hey, I think this tree should be saved. Don't don't take this tree out. Um, we can mitigate the risk by simply doing some crown reduction, 
or uh, you know even moving the the targets beneath the tree or uh, maybe installing a cabling and, or bracing system that will give mechanical support to a structural defect so that now we can save that tree and, and give it another 10 or 15 years of life in the landscape without having to take it down. Talking trees was save a tree. That's what we're trying to do. Save that tree. There you go. <laughs> Our final segment here, Talking Trees, and it's it's always a good sign for me when we've got talking points left. We, we came prepared because <laughs> we're not going to get through all of these talking points in this last segment. What do you feel is most important? Well, I wanted to mention, too, the, the benefits of, of having that fall rain that we enjoyed, you know, this, this last couple of months with just this amazing rain over these last couple of months. It's so good for the trees. Of course, we're going to be dialing back our sprinkler timers don't you know neglect to water at all. I know some people say, "Oh, we just shut our, our water off in the winter altogether," but remember that that trees do need occasional deep watering. So, if you do um, dial back your timers, you at least give them a, a monthly deep soaking of all your trees, especially your Aleppo pines. I'm so happy for the Aleppo pines because they're the one tree species that have all sorts of stress problems, as many of our listeners know, all across Phoenix the last couple of years. We've had a lot of flagging of our, our pine trees um, having a, a lot of dieback. They say is due to the fact that we are lacking winter rains. Aleppo pines from Syria, Aleppo, Syria, in their native habitat, they get a lot of regular winter rains in the Mediterranean area. They enjoy the, that regular seasonal winter fall and winter rain. When we don't get it here, we often have that summer flagging, and people are always, you know, running after the insects. Sometimes the insects are there, mites and other things causing issues. But those mites and other things are opportunistic. They're there when those trees are stressed because they haven't gotten the winter rain. Then those stressed trees invite that insect activity, and then we have the flagging. So we're going to have a, a crazy uh, weed season this next spring, and the and and probably a banner um, wildflower year. So it's going to be really cool in, in the spring to see what happens as a response to all that rain. So we had a caller. Uh, he couldn't stay on the phone, but his name is Jeff. He's new to the valley. He's got some citrus trees that are producing, but one in particular, he describes it as splitting, and he used the term stress pop. He said the fruit on the tree is still producing, and he's stumped as to why it would just st- suddenly start to st- uh, split. Well, you know, a lot of our citrus trees this year, the the fruit is starting to size, and and starting to uh, you know get its uh, the the lemons are turning yellow, the oranges and tangerines are turning, uh, turning orange, and um, the, uh, the as the fruit sizes and gets heavier in weight, uh, the the uh, it's gonna, it causes a lot of problems with lemon trees, especially we have a lot of lemon tree branch breakage this time of year. As those as those trees are starting to get full, if you have those branches that you're and you're concerned about them, it, it's a, probably a good idea before you get um, get they get so heavy that they break, go out and thin them out, and take out you know 30% of those those um, uh, fruits. They're generally uh, sweet enough to to use. Um, uh, if they're not, it's still a, a good practice just to avoid uh, getting that branch breakage. But we'll get a lot of those stress breaks and torsion breaks where the branches will will split. They won't completely break, but you'll you'll be able to, you know they'll they'll split. And uh, some sometimes it's unfortunate, but you will get the uh, bra- lemon branches will break all the way off. 
and sometimes even destroying the integrity of the remaining part of the tree, the trunk from which they broke. And it's kind of a, uh, it's a difficult repair job because then you've got to come in and put some shade cloth in because the, it exposes a, a part of the, the tree that hasn't had sunlight before and um, that can cause some sunburn and then it, then even more dieback of the, of the, of the tree. So, um, yeah, sorry to hear about that, 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 that broken branch. Hopefully the, uh, um, the, it can be saved. Sometimes you can, if you just have a torsion break, uh, it, where the branch hasn't broken entirely, but it's 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 it got a twist break. Sometimes we'll take the fruit off of it, take the the weight off of it, and just save it. Sometimes those branches still will 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 conduct water nutrients through the remaining part of the 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 bark, but they're um, they're still salvageable. And then you can even eat, sometimes even put a, a put a few wood screws through uh, into the into those areas that are where you got the stress breaks. And you can save the tree, and and it'll it'll produce fruit in, in coming years. But could you tie it with a you can, string? You, can, or? you could. You could even put a small little um, eighth inch um, aircraft cable in there. You know, small. You know, we we use um, cables and braces in larger diameter. But on smaller trees, we've even used three eighths inch uh, eye bolts and a and an, and an eighth inch um, air, aircraft cable between them. On the large, and those you know hold up a tremendous amount of weight, three or four or five hundred pounds easily. So, and 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 the smaller hardware is nicer for the smaller diameter branches. But yeah, you know, consult with an arborist, and we can uh, give you a heads up on on how to how to install a a cable and bracing system if you've got one of those branches that's um, broken but not broken all the way off. And if the citrus tree is in an area, you can just let it do its own thing. I have found personally in our orchard. The, the more you leave it alone, the, the less breaks you have. It, it kind of manages itself pretty yeah, efficiently. Yeah, you can let those branches but, go right down to the ground. They, they support themselves. But we can't, uh, you know, in, in pretty landscapes and all maintenance, we got to make them all clean and shiny. But, man, if, if I'd see if you can let it go, that, that would be it's uh, nice. let, let it, you know, just do your dead wood thinning every other year. And yep. uh, that seems to be, you know, I, I love this time of year because we'll go out and we'll pick limes and lemons and grapefruits and oranges and uh, pink grapefruits and we'll squeeze it and make you know a, a citrus <laughs> drink and every every cup is different because you know our pick and our squeeze mix is different it's a lot of fun but if somebody needed to schedule that arborist john how do they get a hold of save a tree 602-788-0005 is the best way 602-788-0005 or save a tree s-a-v-a-t-r-e-e dot com and uh mr peterson thanks for joining us breaking uh you know your first time in the broadcast look forward to seeing you in, in studio more absolutely thanks for having me